Hello, and welcome to Road to COP26, a Euromoney podcast. I'm Lucy Fitzgeorge-Parker. I'm the editor for Sustainable Finance at Euromoney magazine, and I'm your host for this weekly series in which I'm using the upcoming climate conference in Glasgow in November as an opportunity to talk to some interesting people about key themes in sustainable finance. Now, obviously, the title of this series is Road to COP26, but in fact, the inspiration for the second episode is another COP. COP15, otherwise known as the UN Biodiversity Conference, was originally due to take place last October, but was postponed twice for obvious reasons. And the first part of it is now taking place in Kunming in China this week. The second half is scheduled for May next year. So this seemed like a good opportunity to talk about nature finance, which has been one of the hottest topics of the past year, and to look at where that's going and what COP15 and indeed COP26 might mean for the sector. And to discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by Fabian Huvila, founder of Poseidon Capital and all-round nature finance guru. Fabian, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me, Lucy. <laughs> so, Fabian, to start with, could you maybe tell our listeners a bit about your background in nature finance? I guess, first of all, what prompted you to get involved in it in the first place? Sure. I came into the finance industry in 2006, about a year before the global financial crisis took off. And since I had a background in political science, economics, and international law, I was looking for a place where my interests would align with practical challenges at the intersection of these fields. And as it happened, a position would open up a few months later within Credit Suisse's sustainability group in Zurich. And I took that chance. And over the next few years, I would learn from the ground up from a group of true experts about what sustainability means in the context of a, a global financial institution. Early on, I started to specialize in an area called sustainability risk management. Again, at a time where not many banks would give these issues attention when they provided financial services to their clients. And as part of our daily routine, we would analyze and assess the bank's financing and underwriting transactions with clients. We would see potential negative environmental and social, mostly human rights impacts, and we try to mitigate these. And during that period, I learned a tremendous lot about different industries, mostly forestry, ag, oil and gas, mining. And I got exposed quite regularly to the negative impacts extractive companies can have on nature and the communities living in these areas or adjacent to them. And after about six years, I was getting a bit bored, frankly, a bit frustrated as well. Um, with being in a constant reactive mode as, as a risk manager. And as I didn't want to leave the bank, I was looking for something more opportunity focused and came across this market called conservation finance. And I immediately felt attracted by the proposition of the market and was eager to learn more. And the only place where education was offered at that time was in something called the conservation finance bootcamp at Yale University. It is a course led by Professor Brad Gentry and it still exists today. And at the end of that week-long course, participants were asked to present a topical challenge they felt inclined to pursue. And as someone who firmly believes in the intellectual progress through debates, I spoke to the faculty and they confirmed that there wasn't any regular global meeting of investors in the space at that point in time. And so I went back to Zurich and started working on a concept for a global nature investor conference. And a few months later, we had our first global meeting at the Fed in San Francisco. And back then, the industry was small, very US-driven, primarily centered around sustainable forest management funds. But I sensed there was great potential for more. And so I became almost like an entrepreneur within Credit Suisse with the opportunity to build up the conservation finance business. Together with McKinsey and WWF, we 
embarked in 2014 and then 2016 again on two major research projects with the aim to really lay the intellectual ground for where the conservation finance industry could go over the next few years. And in response to the first report publication, some of the bank's clients got interested in the topic. And as there wasn't any suitable product on offer for them, we decided to create one. So in 2014, we launched the Nature Conservation Notes, the first nature-focused product launched by any Wall Street bank. And while it was small in size, it would provide us with many useful learnings for future product development. And as the industry grew, so did our conference as well. And from a small initial gathering among practitioners, it turned into the annual go-to event for the industry and investors interested in the space. And then around 2016, 2017, the industry focus seemed to have shifted to scaling and using capital markets as a positive force for nature. The first green bonds were launched with user proceeds allocated to nature and then later followed by the first blue bonds. And this was also the time where investing in oceans and the blue economy became an investment topic, at least in expert circles. We would start working on a first feeder product investing in an ocean-focused private equity fund. And then the focus would slightly shift to public markets. Uh, as you probably know, an investor on average only allocates 5 to 10% of a portfolio to private equity. So there was this realization that a large part of an investor's portfolio just could not be exposed to nature. And so I started developing and then structuring in early 2018 an ocean-focused public equities fund. In the meantime, I had global responsibility for green product development at Credit Suisse, but frankly felt more and more isolated and, and also torn between seeing that tremendous market potential and investor demand for impactful products on the one hand, but then also the lack of ambition and ignorance of this potential by the bank on the other hand. And so in the context of a restructuring, I then left the bank in 2019. And after I had left the organization, I started thinking about the next story to be written. And my guiding question all along has been, where can I add most value to financing the long-term restoration and protection of nature? And as I was looking for it didn't exist, I decided to create it and called it Poseidon. And that's where we are today. Okay, fantastic. Well, one question on that. You said, obviously, that you felt that you know, Credit Suisse, there was a lack of ambition on nature. Do you think that was something specific to Credit Suisse? Or is it more generally that nature is a difficult area for bigger banks to engage with? I don't think it was something that was particular to Credit Suisse. Frankly, it's, it's, it's something that we see in the market still these days and that nature is a very complex investment field, um, multidimensional on so many levels that it's just hard to get your head around. And frankly, one could argue that together with JP Morgan, Credit Suisse was one of the more advanced banks in the industry, but also there, there was just not a broad belief in that the market could scale in any meaningful way in, in, in a short period of time. That's what these big banks are about, uh, finding investment areas that you can scale quite quickly. And before we come to Poseidon Capital, do you think that is changing at the big banks? Are you seeing signs of movement on that now? I'm, I'm seeing slow, slow movements uh, across the board. And I think it's primarily European banks. But again, looking at the, at the challenge that we have and at, at the opportunity as well in nature markets, I don't think it is a commensurate response in any way, frankly. Okay, so well, tell me about Poseidon Capital then. When did you actually get started? So, so the company was launched in early 2020. Um, so we're, we're, we're fairly new. And, you know, it was at, at the time, as you know, um, pre-COVID times, people can hardly remember that. Um, 
where I just felt, frankly, there's this huge demand in the industry for a specialized institution, a bank for nature, as I call it, that would focus all its efforts on creating more investable products in the space. And Poseidon is, is really, uh, the vision is to become a home for what I call the bankers for nature, those who value timely action over grandiose aspiration. And there's a growing number of, of these bankers in the industry. And also a home where our human intelligence, which unfortunately is limited, is augmented with artificial intelligence to focus on one thing only, and that is scalable investment vehicles for the one planet we have. And to get there, I really think that the dormant productivity of our planet needs to be unlocked in new ways. So we're, we're all about finding innovative partnerships, sometimes also creating unusual partnerships with experts where we believe um, these, this expertise is required to bring product development to a next level. Well, can you tell me a bit about that then? What are some of the things you've been working on or that you're working on now that are particularly innovative or exciting? Um, I guess there's a number of, of different dimensions to being more innovative and also being more, more robust, frankly, in, in product development. One of them is, is quite obvious is just looking at the different asset classes. If you look at the average portfolio of an investor, it is invested across equities, fixed income, and then on, on the private market side, there is definitely an allocation to private equity. It might be to real assets, uh, frankly, even to directly to commodities. Uh, if you look at the other hand on what the supply is in terms of products, then uh, predominantly in the nature space, most products are in the private equity bucket, which, as I mentioned before, is a very small allocation uh, on average by, by the investors. So we've been looking quite a bit at what are some of the investment opportunities in the public market space, uh, both in equities, but also fixed income, where you can create impact uh, in nature, uh, but at the same time invest in these asset classes. So looking at oceans as an investment theme and trying to find smaller companies in the smaller mid-cap space with convincing business models that create you know, a positive impact on oceans specifically. On the fixed income side, you might have seen that there is an increasing amount of issuance coming from both sovereigns and subnationals, but also corporates uh, where um, user proceeds goes exclusively to nature issues. And so we've been thinking hard around a structure where you could put these different issuances under one roof and, and, and a fixed income fund, but at the same time also looking at the materiality of these issuances and whether the issuer actually takes natural capital and investments in natural capital seriously and hopefully find a way to price that into the product as well. And then on, on the private market side, I mean, there's there's a number of things going on. There's, there's quite a bit of innovation in that area between public and private markets. So structures like SPACs that have a very much a public market component, but then are almost like a private equity in disguise. Um, so again, that's another area where we spend quite a bit of time focusing on. I think we've discussed this before. One of the problems that people say with some of the nature finance is that, well, as you say, scale and that uh, a lot of the projects are quite small. And there's been talk about trying to aggregate some of these. Is that something that you think is going to be um, successful, is going to be a focus over the next few years? Um, aggregation is, is, has been a big topic for some time, and I think it continues to be. And, and frankly, it is very often uh, the only way where you can really get to institutional size scale. Um, the replication is often quite hard. We see really interesting and successful transactions that are quite context-specific, and they couldn't just be easily replicated. I mean, one example is, again, looking at the debt for nature swaps that have been, you know, 
en vogue in the 1980s have come back now a few years ago with the Seychelles swap and just recently the Belize swap that has been announced. Having worked on these transactions before, I know there's a lot of work that goes into it, which is very much country specific. And you talk to a number of different ministries that are totally different in another jurisdiction, um, a, a number of, again, jurisdictional peculiarities that, that you just can't replicate. And so I, I just feel that the only way that you really get to institutional size scale is if you can aggregate very similar assets uh, into, a, into a financial structure that makes sense for the investor. Okay, great. And you mentioned AI. So where does that come in? Um, I guess there's a number of ways where AI could really come in. I think if I had to pick one where there's a lot of opportunity, but thank you also a lot of challenges, it's around data synthesis. And what I mean with that is what we've recently seen is a surge in nature finance pledges, which has brought a lot of attention to the reliability of, of nature data. And the demand for such data will become particularly acute within sustainable finance products and, or also strategies and initiatives that take nature protection at its heart. But I think reporting standards and regulation today are not providing adequate incentives for companies to align their expenses, which is usually CapEx and OpEx, with the long-term growth objectives that they have. And so I think one way to get there is that we need better global-scale environmental monitoring capabilities. And there's a number of interesting startups in the space that try to provide solutions to, to that problem. Uh, what happens, though, in terms of the uptake of, of this information is that it's usually put in the hands of scientists, project developers that want to run projects in these specific areas, policymakers, but they're not really put in the hand of, hands of bankers. And I think they should. And one approach could be that we just synthesize such data into practical information for financial markets, which is a really daunting task because very often this information is unstructured and you need a lot of expertise both on, on a scientific level, but also on a financial level to understand what kind of information is relevant for what particular investment product or investment theme. But again, I, I think if we put the power of earth scale data into, into the hands and at the fingertips of investors, that could really turn financial portfolio construction upside down. So what are we talking about here? Are we talking about sort of satellite monitoring of forestry, agriculture, fishing? Yeah, sa satellite monitoring is something that has made tremendous progress, or I should rather say has become much more affordable for you know, an average person uh, to, to access. And I think where the challenge lies is really to combine the different scientific methods that we have in terms of getting a grips of what is happening in nature into one combined metric that is relevant to financial markets. So you could use satellites, but at the same time, you also use, um, I guess, user-collected or human-collected information from the ground. Um, you could use sensor information um, and then use technologies like machine learning to process that information and trying to find patterns of it. And if, I think if you do that in a combined way, then you come up with results that can be relevant in terms of finding what I think everyone in the industry is looking for, um, potential for alpha generation. So arbitrage potential that no one else has detected before, values that have been on uh, assets that have been undervalued or overvalued, and frankly, where a repricing needs to be happening. And again, um, I think where we're still at the beginning is understanding what kind of data is available, um, where we've done some progress, but then basically collating that data and making sense of it. This is where the, the really big challenge lies. Just because also Earth is really complex to model. 
And what would you say was one of the most exciting things you've seen recently in that space? Um, I, I think there's a number of interesting companies trying to address, I guess, a number of different challenges along that entire intellectual value chain. So if I had to mention one company, I, I really love a startup um, that is based between Italy and the US called Chloris, which is basically looking at a combination of um, satellites um, and, and sensor data and fuses that in order to come up with very accurate predictions of what the um, carbon storage potential of a very specific asset is. It could be a forest, it could be a landscape. And, you know, the, the application or the data that comes out of that is important on the number of levels. It is important for, I guess, the, the project proponent, the seller of a project to understand how, how much the project is actually worth, how much it stores in terms of carbon, which has become a commodity that is traded um, on, on, on voluntary and compliance markets and is aftersold quite a bit by investors. But it's also important for the buyer, frankly, um, as I, can, I guess kind of a proof of what they're actually buying and then and a tool for them to understand what the asset is actually worth. And it is a monitoring tool for both both sides to understand also whether the interventions are directing us into some positive outcomes or negative outcomes. Well, you mentioned obviously that a lot of this is about carbon markets and clearly there's a lot of intersection there between nature and climate finance. Do you think that sort of focus on the intersection between the two is, is positive for the nature side or is, are there downsides to nature being seen as part of the climate solution? Um, I, I think it has been a very difficult relationship for some times and I always always think about siblings and it's almost like the climate change is the big brother and 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 biodiversity is, is the younger sister but I think um, uh, you know the sister has grown quite a bit and I, there is a realization also now in, in broader financial markets that biodiversity is a separate topic albeit interlinked with the climate issue through nature-based solutions and natural carbon solutions um, so it's almost like that shadow has slightly disappeared, but it's it's still somewhat there in terms of traditional thinking by investors to allocate money to specific topic and buckets. We often hear from some investors that, you know, we already have allocated money to the climate bucket. And you have to make that convincing argument that if it's not nature-based solutions, then maybe nature should be looked at separately because, again, it is a separate topic. And biodiversity is a lot more than just the, the climate issue. So overall, I think it has helped in that there is this relationship, but sometimes there is still that, that shadow that kind of pops up here and then. Well, talking about biodiversity, the reason we're having this conversation at the moment is partly because it is we're just coming up to uh, COP15 in Kunming, which is the uh, COP on biodiversity. I've heard some people saying this could be the equivalent of uh, Paris in 2015 for biodiversity. Do you think that's right? Um I, I don't think that's right. It, to me, the cops are a bit like the Valentine's Days. This is the time once a year where politicians, corporates and other leaders show public feelings of affection and care for something. But really what matters is what they do the rest of the year, right? And what, what all of us do the rest of the year. With regard to the upcoming CBD COP, I personally am a bit skeptical about whether this has any material impact on financial markets. Maybe I'm facetious here, but I don't think that many bankers know about the events happening in the first place. And if they don't know about it, it's hard to see why they would feel impacted by any outcomes of it. 
the Kuming Declaration, <clears throat> which I think is hailed to be the key outcome of the meeting, is arguably just another call for action. And uh, if I'm not wrong, it will anyway only be decided next spring as, as the COP is, is, is kind of divided into two uh, events. I think of more relevance is definitely the UNFCCC COP in Glasgow. And the critical conversation that we'll have at Glasgow is whether we will come to an agreement on Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. And for people who are not familiar with that, this is covering the international transfer of mitigation outcomes or more generally um, the industry calls it the international carbon markets and what happens around a international carbon price or any guidance around such a price. And we know that the international community so far has failed to agree on the rules governing such a market broadly. But I think if we get enough countries now that want to move that along, this could be a game changer for financial markets. And, and frankly, um, that is something that a lot of us are hoping for. I see there is actually a nature day at uh, COP26. I think it's for the first time, is that right, at a, at a climate COP? It could be that it's the first official day. I know there were previous events around nature at, at previous COPs, but um, I think it shows you something about the increased relevance of, of the topic. But then again, I mean, this is this is a day where there's a lot of high-level speeches. I think the real work happens in, in between the COPs. Okay, fantastic. Will you be in Glasgow? I might be in Glasgow, and there's a number of events. But as you know, these days, a lot of the events are virtual. So um, I, I think I have to think twice whether I'll take the, the train or, or, or fly it up there. Okay, well, if you are there, I will be there and it would be great to see you. But for the moment, um, thank you very, very much indeed for taking part in this discussion. That was really interesting. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, we'll hope that, you know, the discussions in Glasgow will lead to any outcome that is relevant for financial markets more broadly and, and I guess for my biodiversity in particular. Definitely. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Please do join me again next week when I'll be talking to Daniel Clear formerly Global Head of Sustainable Finance at HSBC and now CEO of cutting-edge ESG and climate data provider Arabesque S-Ray. We'll be discussing Bank's Net Zero commitments, strategic rationale for sustainability and, of course, COP26. Until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>